the narrative that John lays out for us. You remember just kind of as a recap, chapter 1, he lays out his theology about who Jesus is. So there's this revelation of Jesus. And then towards the end of chapter 1, there's that proclamation with John the Baptist uh, that Jesus is the word who's become flesh, and then John the Baptist is the one who proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then there is the seeing and believing that these disciples, uh, these early disciples that begin to follow him, they're seeing him and they're believing in his name. And so we've seen these little vignettes, if you will, about these men that have come to become his disciples. We know they end up becoming their disciples, but we're given like this insight into how that happened. So last week, if you remember, we talked about Philip, who Jesus went and looked for him. And then Philip went and found Nathaniel, and they had this incredible interaction where Nathaniel was this skeptic, but then Jesus says a few things to him, and then all of a sudden he just completely believes, and then that continues on into where we are today. So again, I know that Neil's already read this, but I just want to be fresh on our minds. Uh, let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1, and let's set the context of where we're going today. On the third day, <clears throat> there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So verse 12 is kind of like a transition into where we're going to find ourselves next week. The heart of what we're going to look at really goes through verse 11. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about we left off with Nathaniel, who is the skeptic. He was the one who was like, can anything good come from Nazareth? You remember that? So Philip goes to him and he says, we found the Messiah. We found the one who is the Christ. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And that, that's when Nathaniel goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And if you remember, Jesus, as Nathaniel and Philip are approaching, because whatever Philip did he convinced Nathaniel to come and meet Jesus matter of fact he says come and see so in other words I'm not going to be able to convince you of it I'm not going to be able to tell you enough information you just got to come and see for yourself and so whatever it was Philip was very instrumental in convincing Nathaniel that he needs to at least come and check that out so they do so as Philip and Nathaniel are approaching Jesus Jesus makes this statement and he says an Israelite in whom there is no deception, no guile, no trickiness, okay? 
And there's, it's obvious that Jesus is making an allusion back to Jacob. Because remember, Jacob was Israel, but it was Israel before his name got changed. So remember, Jacob is the one who God changed his name to Israel, and he's the one who becomes the father of the 12 tribes. Now, what's interesting about it is Jacob's name, as Jacob, literally means swindler. It means heel grabber. It means someone who is a bit unethical. And we know that about Jacob's life, right? He's the one that from the very beginning was after his brother. Now, he knew that God had chosen him, and he knew that God said to him, it's through you I'm going to fulfill the promises that I've made to your grandfather. But he always felt like he had to help God out a lot. In other words, I know that God wants to do this, and because God wants to do this, this gives me a right to run over whoever I want to because God's given me this right. He misunderstood the calling of God. And so he was always trying to manipulate people to get his way, to get his blessing. So he was a trickster in that sense. He was one who was full of guile. And what happens is later on, he begins to understand that it wasn't about him, that this has been about God all along. And then God changes his name to Israel because Israel, the word Israel literally means one who strives with God. And so he wrestled with this angel of the Lord. And that's where Jacob's heart began to turn a little bit more. Now, again, he wasn't perfect. Even from that point forward, he wasn't perfect. But that's where his attitude and perspective of what God was doing really began to change. And so he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. All right. Now, here's what's interesting. As Nathaniel was walking up and Jesus says, look. An Israelite in whom there is no guile. It's like Neil said last week. In essence, what Jesus was saying, look, there's an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Now, the reason that's important is because what did Nathaniel say to Philip? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And in essence, what Jesus is saying, look, something good came out of Jacob. And so and I think that was the beginning part of it. And he was like, how do you know me? And he said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And so whatever it was that Nathaniel had been reflecting on and meditating on from God's word, more than likely probably centered around the person of Jacob, uh, probably centered around that story in some sense. But whatever it was, he knew that Jesus knew something. And it convinces him fully that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. He makes that declaration. He says, you are the true king of Israel. And I love that because he starts off saying, you're an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Philip ends by saying, you're the king of Israel. In essence, saying, you're my king. You're my king. And so the story begins to flow from that. Now, remember at the very end of that passage last week, it talked about this vision, again, going back to Jacob. But early on, when Jacob was trying to trick everybody and make blessings happen in his life, he had to run for his life, penniless, had nothing to his name, running for his life from his brother Esau, who was trying to kill him. And on the way, God reminds him through a dream that you're the one that I've chosen, and I'm going to be faithful to what I told Abraham I was going to do, and I'm going to do that through you. And he gives them this vision of a ladder that stretches to heaven. We refer to this as Jacob's ladder. And on this ladder, he sees angels ascending and descending. Well, on the passage that, that we left off with last week, he tells Philip, you believe just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Greater things than this you're going to see. You will see angels ascending and descending. But this time he doesn't say that it's on a ladder. He says you're going to see it on the Son of Man. So in other words, somehow as that ladder in Jacob's dream was a connection from heaven to earth, that somehow there's this interaction between heaven and earth, Jesus is now declaring, 
I am that ladder. I am the connection between heaven and earth. I am the one that's going to bring these two things together because they have been separated for so long. And then it makes sense that the very next passage, John begins to explain to us exactly what that looks like. He begins to tell us what it looks like when heaven comes to earth. And so, that brings us to uh, our passage, and I want to just kind of break it down a few verses at a time and follow the, the thought, the logic that John gives to us here in, in detailing this narrative to us. Look again at verse 1. On the third day, does that remind you of anything? Yeah, so John from the very beginning is highlighting things. Now, I want to tell you something right now that you need to remember throughout the rest of our study, and that is this. John never wastes any ink. So if you read something and you're like, wow, that was a lot of detail to give on that, then that means every detail in there matters. Everything in there he wants to draw to your attention, and everything in there has some importance of understanding what it is he's trying to say. He doesn't just give detail for detail's sake. Matter of fact, the whole gospel of John ends with him saying, I don't have time to write down all the things that Jesus did. Matter of fact, if I tried to, all the books in the world couldn't hold them. What is he saying? He's saying that I've written down things that I'm being very intentional about. And if he's writing down things he's being very intentional about, even the details play into that intentionality. So we must pay attention to the details that he's given to us. On the third day, he's already drawn our minds, so what's the importance of the third day? He's going to get to that at the end. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I would say this. That a lot of people think that Mary was in charge somehow in this wedding because later on you see her kind of ordering some servants around, or at least it seems like that. I don't think that's the case simply because of the way John opens this up. He says that Jesus and his disciples were also invited after he told us that Mary was at this, this wedding feast. So that would in indicate to us that Mary was invited just as Jesus and the disciples were also invited okay you use that word also when you're connecting it to something that you've already stated so if i said to you you know so and so was there and so and so and so so were also invited to it that would indicate that the per first person was also invited to it and that's what starts the pattern to use the word also so i say that because i believe that here it's not mary who is going oh my gosh i've let this thing get out of control and now I need some help. I think Mary is actually displaying some compassion for what's happening there. She sees how this thing has fallen apart, and she's trying to take action to help out with what's falling apart here. And the reason is because of what this all represents. Now, the reason I would say that Jesus finds himself at this wedding ceremony is also because of what happened in the last passage. If you turn all the way to John chapter 21, verse 2, which we'll get to in a couple of years, um, it says this very simply. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, and what's the next word? Nathaniel of, where is he from? Canaan, Galilee. Where is Jesus right now? That's where Nathaniel is from. So more than likely, this is a carryover from his initial response to Nathaniel. Nathaniel's response to him, and Nathaniel's like, this is the Christ, the Son of God. And so he knows this is my king. Immediately, what does Nathaniel want to do? He wants to take him back to his hometown and introduce him to all the other people to say, we have found the Christ, the Messiah. So that's probably why Jesus finds himself invited here to this wedding ceremony. And again, it's not far from where they were in the very beginning. Now, in verse 3, it says this. 
when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, talking to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the reason I say that I believe that Mary is having a lot of compassion is because of the cultural concepts of a Jewish wedding ceremony. Now, this is the highlight of a young man and a young Jewish woman in their entire life. I mean, they look forward to it from the time that they're young. They usually get married in their teenage years, and then it's all downhill from there. So this is like the highlight of what the best you could hope for is this wedding ceremony. And actually, their wedding ceremonies are very different than ours. (coughs) In our ceremonies today, You typically get an invitation, you go somewhere on a Saturday, usually when an SEC team is playing, and you think, did they not look at their calendar ahead of time? And um, I'm just kidding. But then you go to that wedding ceremony, and what happens is you go, you sit through a 15-minute sermon, maybe 30-minute sermon, if I'm doing it, 45-minute sermon, and then you have a little reception at the end. In the reception, you go and get some finger foods, and you you know the wealth of the family according to how that reception goes. You go in there and there's pimento cheese sandwiches. You know you're dealing with some people that are kind of on the poor side, right? You go in there and it's a sit-down dinner and there are linen napkins. You know you're up on the upper side of, of things in life. And so depending on how that reception goes, the whole point of it is to celebrate what's happening in that person's life and to be able to wish them well in their journey from that day forward because they're going to need it, all right? And so that's the celebration. But for the Jews, it was very different. Matter of fact, their wedding ceremonies lasted over a week and it went 24 hours a day here's what would happen whenever it was time for a young jewish bride and a young jewish groom to come together the groom would announce his arrival or going to get his bride with trumpets they would actually march in a procession surrounded by a lot of their loved ones and friends with torches late at night. They would go and get her. She would meet them at the property's edge. And then from that point forward, they would escort them through the entire town as long a path as possible because people would just come out and wish them well. It was a huge celebration. After they've gone through this long parade route, they would finally end up back at the father of the groom's house where they would set up literally a throne, they would wear a crown and a robe, and they would be treated like kings and queens the entire time during this wedding ceremony and the reception. How many of y'all think that would be an awesome opportunity? Any dad here who has a girl says that is not a great idea at all, okay? Because the whole time, anybody could come any time of day, and they could just come in, and they could fellowship, they could eat, and they could drink. It was an open party, 24 hours a day, for an entire week. This was a highlight for them. The only caveat to the story is this. You never, ever, ever run out of wine. That, that, is, that is the worst possible thing that could ever happen in a Jewish wedding ceremony is that you run out of wine. Running out of wine would be a disgrace to the family. It would be a disgrace to the couple. It would be like a bad omen to them. It's kind of like if you plan an outdoor wedding and a tornado came through during your wedding. You would take that as, hmm, maybe we're making a bad decision here. The same thing would be running out of wine during a Jewish wedding ceremony. It's something that you pray would never, ever happen. And so you are prepared for it. And it seems like here what happened is they've run out of wine. And Mary, being compassionate, goes, oh, my goodness, we've got to fix this. 
I mean, we, we've got to do something. She's having compassion for this young bride and this young groom. Now, the other thing we have to understand is the significance of wine in Jewish culture. The rabbis had this saying. They said, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Now, I'm not going to ask for an amen, but I know that some of you are secretly thinking, amen to that. I agree with those Jewish rabbis. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. So what happened was wine become representative of joy. So any joyous occasion, you would always have wine because it represented what it was all about. And so think about that. If it was underlined in the Jewish culture, wine represented joy, then running out of wine would be a representation of running out of joy and having nothing. And that would be a sad reality for any young Jewish bride and groom. So Mary, having this compassion, goes to her son Jesus. Now, we're not told why she goes to Jesus, but we can understand that she probably knows, right? We know that from early on, his birth was miraculous. We know that when they were leaving the temple and they forgot him and they had to go back and get him, he said, don't you know I would be about my father's business? And it says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. Then we don't know what happened during his teenage years and his 20s. But now at 30 years old, she is convinced that he somehow can remedy this, that he somehow could be the answer. So she goes to him and she says, hey, they've run out of wine. To which Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if you are a teenager or a young person here today, even though you do find this in Scripture, and you could probably make that claim, I'm just going to say to you, don't ever say that to your mother when she comes and asks you to do something. If your mother comes and says, clean up your room, do not look at her and say, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Because your hour will come very quickly after that if you have that kind of attitude, all right? Now, here's the thing is we have this text, but we don't understand the wording here because the wording is slightly different in our culture. Woman is actually a term of endearment for them. Let me take you to a couple other instances and just kind of show you what I'm talking about. Do you remember the adulterous woman who was caught in adultery and they wanted to stone her? And Jesus, you know, miraculously in that situation, he says to them very wisely, hey, whoever's uh, without sin, you throw the first stone. And they all dropped them. They walked away. And then he says to her, his words were, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Do, do you sense any harshness in, in that statement that Jesus says to her? No, because woman is actually a term of endearment in that day and time. To use the word woman. Matter of fact, we go all the way to the cross, and Jesus is dying on the cross, and he entrusts the care of his mother Mary to the gospel writer John, who is one of his disciples. And the way he does that, he says, woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy woman. So whenever we see the word woman used, it's a term of endearment, and we shouldn't understand it any differently here. What Jesus is saying is he's reminding Mary of what he's already reminded her of before. That is, his life is on a trajectory. He's not there to do earthly business. He's there to do heavenly business. He's about his father's kingdom, and that's what he's there to pursue. He says even, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time that it's mentioned, but you'll hear it mentioned many times over throughout the rest of the gospel of John. Because Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. And then when we get to the cross and betrayal of Jesus, he says, my hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that's important for us to understand because it tells us that Jesus' ministry and the glorification of Jesus 
is not to be understood in any of his miracles. The glorification of Christ is to be understood in his sacrifice and his death. That's when he was glorified the most. That's when he fulfilled what the Father sent him to do. That's when he finished his obedience. It wasn't in the great things that he did. It was in the obedience that he followed and God's will for his life. And so again, all of this is very intentional because John is setting us up for how this is going to transpire from this point forward. Look at verse 5. After Jesus says, Woman, how does this concern me? My hour has not yet come. Mary must understand exactly what he's talking about because she gives some great advice. She turns to the servant. She says, do whatever he tells you. Okay? So again, I don't think she's in charge here. I think she's just going and saying, hey, I know this is about to be an embarrassment. Just tell me, do whatever he tells you. If he tells you to do something, you do it. I promise you this is going to work out. Okay? Because I know him. So she goes to them and says, do whatever he tells you. Great advice. We always get great advice from our mothers, right? And this is great advice from the mother of Jesus. It's great advice for all of us. Whatever he does or whatever he says, you do it. I mean, think about that, the importance of understanding that kind of obedience. Understanding that in life, sometimes Jesus may ask us to do something that doesn't make sense. But the way servants respond is that we do exactly what he asks us to do. And we see that as it unfolds in those next few verses. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, this is an incredible passage right here that has so much in it that's heavy and really about what true obedience is about. Let's start with the fact that he talks about these stone water pots that are for the Jewish rite of purification. Now, the water jars that were used for this purification rites are a sign, I believe in this story, that God is doing something new. Because these water pots represent the way things used to be. In other words, the way things they did it in that day and time it was all based in the law. You go back to Leviticus and there was these very strict ceremonial ways of washing yourself to purify yourself for whatever was to come. Uh, many times you would go and you would wash your hands before you would eat ceremonially. If you go to our Passover meal, you will see in that Passover meal, there is this whole act where the mother comes around with a jar of water and you wash your hands ceremonial several times throughout the Passover meal. So as a representation of we need to be cleansed, and so we would go through that cleansing process, ceremonially speaking, to prepare ourselves or to wash ourselves. Okay, So that's what it represents. That's what they were in the house for, for all of them to go through this. Now, here's the thing. After we turn that water into wine, and there is wine in there, can they be used for what they were intended for from the beginning? Which means no one else can come in and ceremonially wash themselves for the rest of this wedding ceremony. That's intentional. Because Jesus is doing something different. This is a foreshadowing of the old is now being replaced with the new. Not that there was anything wrong with the old, except for the fact that it never really purifies you. It was just a symbol of something that is to come. And so where the old could never fulfill, the new is going to come in and fulfill. Now, there is a subtle message here. And I want to point it out because it really is putting a lot of these things together. The jars typically filled with water. Jesus says, fill them with water. But by the time the story is ended, 
they're filled with what? And wine represents what? Where the old law could never bring joy, Jesus brings joy. The replacement of the old law is that even though it never could fulfill us, even though we never could meet its demands, even though we kept trying and trying and trying, we were only left with falling short. Somehow Jesus is going to bring joy where the law never could. Not again that there's anything wrong with the law, because the law tells us about God's character. It tells us about his standards, which are holy and right and good. The problem is we can't meet them. And so this is a picture of how joy is brought to us by Jesus somehow supplementing the law himself. All right? Now, he says to them, fill those jars with water. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of one of those servants for a moment. All right? You're at this wedding ceremony. You're there to serve because you're a servant. Uh, there are these six pots. What are they made out of? Stone. How much do they hold? 20 to 30 gallons. You know how big those things are? They're huge and heavy, even without anything in them. Then you're going to add 20 to 30 gallons in it. Those things are really, really heavy. Okay, you're a servant there. There are six of those pots. Mary says, hey, they've run out of wine. She goes to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, not my problem, in essence, or something to that effect. And then she goes to them and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Okay, well, I'm sitting there going, okay. And then Jesus comes to me and says, hey, you see those pots over there? Yeah. Why don't you fill those with water? Okay. Now, I know what you and I are thinking. Sure, I'll go get the water hose and fill that thing up with water. They didn't have water hoses. Okay. They didn't have indoor plumbing. The way you filled those things was there was a well in the center of the village. You had to pick those things up take them to that center part of the village, pump water into them, pick them back up, and take them back to the house that you came from, and you had to put them down. I don't know about you, but if I am one of those servants, I'm going, Jesus, listen, I'm all about doing whatever it is that really needs to help you know, fix the problem that we're dealing with here, but listen, I heard what Mary said. She said they're running out of wine. We're not running out of water. We got plenty of water, Jesus. Do you know how heavy those things are? Do you know how far it is to that well? Do you know how long it's going to take us to get all that and take it back over here? And when we get back, Jesus, we still have the same problem. There's not any wine out there coming out of that well. There's only water. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm just not doing that. Think about that for a moment. Isn't that a lot of times what we respond with? God tells us to do something that doesn't make sense for our situation. And instead of having the attitude of a servant, we go, you know what, that's really not what we need. Nah, I don't think I'm going to do that because that doesn't fit my situation. And because we never go get the water, we never get the wine. You see, it's when we have the attitude of a servant that we experience the joy of what Christ wants to bring to us. Many times the demands that God puts on us and the circumstances that he allows us to be in don't seem to fit what is pertinent to that situation. And a lot of times we lose the sight of being a servant and we think we have a choice in it and we make the choice to not follow through with what Christ has asked us to do. And because we never go get the water, we never get the wine. We never see the miracle. We never see the resolution to the problem. But notice for these servants, they, they were obedient. Look at the next phrase. 
and they filled them up to the what? That means when they were out there at that well, pump, I don't know if they had a pump thing or not. I mean, it may have been a little bucket that you dropped down, whatever it was. They didn't stop when it got close. They kept pouring water into these things until it overflowed over the top of it. And they said, that's all the water we can fit in there. And they did that for six stone water pots and then brought all of them back to the house and brought them. You know what this is a picture of? Complete and total obedience. Even in the face of, we don't need any more water, if Jesus said to go get water and put these in there, that's what we're going to do. You know why? It's because they're servants. That's what servants do. Servants don't question their orders. They just fulfill them. Servants aren't responsible for how things work out in the end. Servants are just responsible for doing what they've been asked to do. Servants understand their role, and therefore they don't question what they've been asked to do. Do you understand why Scripture calls us to be servants of God? Because we leave the details to Him. All we are called to be is to be obedient in what He asks us to do. And these servants are the epitome of this. Notice the complete obedience. They fill it to the brim. I love that. And then it follows with, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, if I've gone through that first part, now I really am starting to sweat. Because I know that even though I've gone and got that water, and I've brought all that back, and I've been completely obedient to what Jesus called me to do, there's still only water in that pot. And he says, why don't you draw some of that out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. Now, here's the thing. You pay attention to how this text unfolds. What you find is this still is not wine. It has not been. The miracle has not happened yet. So this is a test of their faith. This is a test of their obedience. I want you to draw out this water. Do you know how embarrassing it would be for a servant to draw out some water and take it to the master of ceremonies and say, here, taste this. Now, you already hope that he drank a lot of that early wine, right? And that he wouldn't notice the difference of that. But you know, this is this guy's role. He's there to make sure everything is going right, that everything is the best that it can be. And these servants are probably like shaking in their boots going, oh my gosh, this guy, what is he going to say when he drinks this water? That's why it says when he drank the water that he did not know where it came from. But the servants knew that all they just handed him was water. But now it has been turned into wine. The miracle happened somewhere between the pot and that guy's lips. Who knows? But here's a beautiful thing. Look how it goes in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Have you ever had someone say, you know, there's something different about you? And they, I'm not talking about in a good way, you know, like, you know, not that a bad thing, but they, they, they notice something is different about you. And, and a lot of times it's because you responded in a circumstance very differently than what they expected. Uh, maybe there was an opportunity for you to retaliate, but instead you extended forgiveness. Maybe you had been wronged, and instead of going after them and making them repay, you just kind of let the wrong go, and you just kind of went the other way and counted your losses and moved on. And they looked at you and they said, you know, there's something different about you. In essence, we're living out the same scenario. See, the servants knew what had happened. The master of the ceremonies didn't. All he knew was 
traditionally, people bring out the best wine, and then after people have had the opportunity to drink, then they bring out the lesser wine. But you have saved the best until the last. He noticed something different. Did the servants know why the last was best? Yes, because they knew exactly what had transpired. See, that's the difference with us and maybe the world around us that views us. When we walk in our obedience to Christ, they notice that there's something different about us. They can't put their finger on it, but we all know what it is. It's not us. It's Christ who has transformed us. We know what we started with. We know that when we started in this life, all we had was water. So if they're looking at it and going, man, the best has been saved at last, we know that something has been transpiring in our life. Jesus has been performing the miracle. He's been bringing joy into us to where we don't find joy in our status or everything working out perfectly. We don't find joy in gathering a whole bunch of stuff in this life. We find joy in being obedient to God. There's a transformation that's happened within us. You know, the master of the ceremonies, he's a bit perplexed at this, and yet he's a bit excited at the same time, isn't he? He's like, wait a minute, now, most people bring the good first, and, but you've saved the best until last. He's excited he's getting this best now. But he's still perplexed and yet excited at the same time. And as servants, we get to know some things that are going on that nobody else does. That's the beauty of it. We get to know why these things are happening. We get to know what's transpiring behind the scenes that other people are marveling at but don't understand because we were obedient because we are a part of the kingdom because we are seeing see that's the beauty of being a servant sometimes you may not get the highest role but you get to see things that nobody else gets to see you get to see the miracle literally unfolding because of your obedience that's what this passage reminds us of and so when we understand how this continues on the good wine he saved until the end that's what he says there notice the difference in the master of ceremonies expectation and what actually happens he expects for the best to come first and the worst to come later but instead the worst came first and the best is saved until the end let me ask you a question do you fall into the trap sometimes of what the master of ceremonies fell into? Because this whole world says, get the best as much as you can early on, right? I mean, the mantra of our generation is, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. I mean, that's it, because it's all there at the beginning, and you never know if you're going to have another opportunity later. So you gather the best that you can. You bring it all in. You live for this world. You live for those moments. You live for that pleasure. You live for that gold. You live for that experience. You live for that relationship. You live for that job. You live for that promotion. Everything good, you want it there at the beginning. And all of a sudden, the Scripture reminds us that God's economy is different, that the good doesn't come first. The good comes last. The good is reserved to the end. You see, in this world, we believe it's so temporal that this is our only existence. Therefore, we must live for all of these moments that we have. And Scripture keeps saying, this life is brief. It's but a vapor. It's a breath of air. It's not going to last long at all. Don't lay up your treasures here. Lay them up in heaven where it extends forever and ever. The best is saved to last. That's the economy of God. See, our problem is not that we are hard to please 
problem is that we are too easily pleased with the things of this world. The problem that we have is that we are pleased with these small little trinkets of this life. C.S. Lewis said it best in his uh, book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, and I'm going to quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And it's almost like this is what this passage is all about. We are far too easily pleased with the bad wine that we think is good when actually the best is coming later. We are so pleased with the things of this world that don't fully fulfill us that don't ultimately please us, that never deliver in what we think they're going to give to us, but we so are wanting that in the moment that we just gravitate. It's not that we're hard to please, it's that we're too easy to please. And we need to set the bar higher. We need to set our expectations higher and understand that the economy of God is very different than ours. There is God's way, and then there's everybody else's way. Everybody else's way is represented by the perspective of the master of ceremonies. Usually the good is first, and then bad later on but God's way is the good the best is saved for the end there was a guy by the name of Henry Morrison he was a missionary um, to Africa he spent 40 years on that continent with his wife ministering to these different tribes throughout Africa each day that he and his wife served over those 40 years I mean it was just different experience some days brought joy some days brought sorrow some days brought wonder. Some days brought pain. Well, eventually, the couple became poor in health, and the missionary board brought Henry and his wife back to the United States for retirement, and they were going to put them into the educational system and the seminaries and let them be teachers and encouragers for those who are ready and preparing themselves to go on the mission field. And so they got on a ship in Africa, off the continent of Africa, and they began their journey back to New York City. And when the ship came up and docked in New York City, there was a huge crowd on the shore. There was a band playing. There were balloons floating around with this huge array of color. They were sitting there going, could this be that the mission board is recognizing what we've done for these 40 years? Could it be that what we've done is this awesome experience and people have realized the sacrifice that we've made? Flags were flying, people were cheering and waving, and then they saw the signs that said, welcome home. Henry and his wife leaned on the rail feeling that their life's work had not been forgotten. And then all of a sudden, President Teddy Roosevelt and his companions stepped down the gangplane of the ship to the roar of the crowd that was standing there on the shore. The president had also been in Africa. He had been on a three-week safari hunting trip on Africa and was just returning. The president, with all the fanfare, was being welcomed back home. When he got into his presidential car and sped off, the crowd sped off with him. The reporters followed him. And so Henry Morrison and his wife, who were held back from getting off the ship until the president had exited the ship and left the area, were finally allowed to make their way down the gangplank to an empty dock. Nobody greeted them, not even somebody from the mission board. They eventually had to hail a cab 
to go to the one-bedroom apartment that was supplied by the mission board where they would be living for the extent of their life. Henry says that when he got to that apartment, depression overcame him. All he could think about was all those years, all those souls that God touched through the sacrifice that they made, all that work. And in honesty, he said, this is wrong, God. The president comes back from a hunting party, and everybody welcomes him back and throws him a huge celebration. We spend 40 years of our lives on a mission field, serving others, and no one seems to care. And then Henry says that in the quietness of that moment, he hears God speak like he's never heard him speak before. And the words he heard was, my son, you're not home yet. Imagine the homecoming that Henry and his wife will receive when they get to heaven. Imagine all the souls that were changed on the continent of Africa who will welcome him and throw a parade and throw banners and say, welcome home. The celebration will exceed anything that could ever be done here on earth. You see, we're not home yet. And what Revelation tells us is that the party's still being planned. God saves the best till last. It's by no accident that the first miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding feast. And the whole of scriptures end with a wedding feast, where we are a part of the wedding feast of the Lamb when we finally realize what we were created for, when the relationship is finally restored, when sin has finally been done away with, when finally we enter into our eternal reward and our eternal glory in the presence of God. My friends, the best is yet to come. One application of the story is obviously obedience and total obedience to what Christ calls us to. Once those servants had done everything they were asked to do, I want to remind you of something. Once they had taken those stone water pots, gone all the way to the fountain, filled them to the brim, brought them all the way back to the house, they still only had water. When they dipped that water out and they took it to the bridegroom, they still only had water. It took the miracle of Christ to turn that water into wine. The reminder to us is this. All of our best efforts in this life to transform anyone's life, to be obedient to Christ, to further the kingdom of God, listen to me, all you have is water. You can be completely obedient to what God calls you to do. You still only have water because that's all we're capable of. It takes the miracle of Christ to turn our water into wine. It's when we are obedient when we follow through with what Christ has called us to, that he takes those meager efforts, those little acts of obedience, and he transforms them into something that can change people's lives, that can radically advance the kingdom of God in this life. It is he who turns our water into wine. It's he that can take our obedience and turn it into joy. It takes the influence of Jesus to turn those efforts into something that's everlasting. Verse 11 this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want to show you again, there's parallels that are being created here. So he tells us very clearly, this is your first sign. And then he tells us again, I think in chapter 3, he says, this is the second sign that Jesus provided. Now after that, he leaves it up to you. So he gets the motor going, he's like, first, second, and then you all have to follow it after that. But I think he's being intentional because why is he saying this is the first sign? I think this goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. This is a new Exodus. 
This is a new exodus in the sense that God, just as he freed them from their oppression and was bringing them out into the new land, so this is the beginning of us being brought, of our, brought out of our sin, slavery, and being freed for the kingdom to come. Because if you go back to Exodus, he called Moses to go free those people. Pharaoh didn't want to r- release them, and so God had to visit wrath on them. Do you remember what the first plague was? The water of the Nile was turned into, what's the first miracle? Water is turned into wine. What was wrath is now joy. This is important because as we move forward in this, what we find is towards the end of the gospel. When Jesus is sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, he institutes what we now celebrate as the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, what we find is a picture of what wine represents. It's often why we use this common cup, which has actual wine in it versus the grape juice. And so we always tell people, whatever your conscience allows, you can do. But the reason we offer that is because it is significant to how this whole thing was started. When Jesus got to the third cup of a Passover meal, if you haven't done a Passover meal, I encourage you to sign up for the one that we're going to do here because it's phenomenal what you learn. There are four cups of wine that are drunk through the Passover meal. When you get to the third one, each one has a name that's specific to the promises in Exodus chapter 6. And the third one is the cup of redemption. When Jesus comes to that, he holds it up and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood that will be spilled for you. All of you take it and drink it. So he breaks tradition there because everybody has their own goblet in front of them. Everybody has their own cup of wine. Jesus breaks the tradition and says, I want you all to drink from this cup, my cup. And so he passes it around and they all drink from it because the symbolism is Jesus' blood is the only one good enough. Ours isn't. And we have to come to him for that salvation, for that redemption. Now here's what's interesting. There are four cups of wine that are drunk through a Passover meal. But it says after he shared that cup with them, it says that, they, that he made a statement that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. And then it says they went out singing. Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. Do you know what the fourth cup is called? The cup of joy or the cup of praise. Jesus doesn't drink the cup of praise. But later on that night, he's in the garden. And he walks a little ways off by himself. And he begins to pray to the Father. And his very words are, Father, if there is any way that this, what? Cup can be removed from me. Please let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What cup is he talking about? The cup of God's wrath. Jesus gives up drinking the cup of joy to drink the wrath of God until there is not a drop left in it so that we could all drink from the cup of joy. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. What's amazing is as we come to this table, we represent the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of Christ. And we realize that the sacrifice that he made is what brings us joy. What breaks down that person, the abuse that he felt the persecution that he endured becomes our joy. That's why in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, 
sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It doesn't say for the joy of the cross. It says for the joy laid before him. What is that? That you and I could drink from the cup of joy. He was willing to take the cup of wrath. So the gospel of John, first miracle at a wedding ceremony. The whole scriptures end with the ultimate wedding ceremony. But until we get there, we must travel on. We must be obedient. We must understand our role as servants. And the way we remember that is by constantly coming back and understanding that it was his sacrifice that brings us joy. Amen? Let's end by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Father God, what an incredible picture of how you long to bring to us the things that would really fulfill our heart's desire. Lord, we try to find it in so many different avenues in this life, so many trinkets in this world. And Lord, we admit truly that our hearts are too easily pleased, that we try to find the pleasure in these small things like kids playing with mud pies. God, we want the bigger things in life. We want the truer things, the eternal things. And that only comes from you and knowing you and being obedient to you and understanding the will that you have for our life that brings us meaning and purpose. And so, God, as we have unfolded your word and allowed it to convict our hearts, may we respond in this moment as we come to remember your sacrifice of your body and your blood that was broken and shed for us. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would be honored as we celebrate your sacrifice. As you drank of the cup of wrath, so we drink a cup of joy. And Lord, we long for the fulfillment of that in the days to come. We long to drink it anew with you in the kingdom. We long for that wedding feast. But until then, let this one be a reminder to us that you are good that your love endures forever, that you have good intentions for us, and that one day you're going to right all the wrongs. One day, no more sickness, no more disease, no more death, no more tears. Until we get to that day, may we be found as your faithful servants in the short time that we have here. We ask this in the powerful and holy name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.